I speak tonight for the dignity of man and the destiny of democracy. May the turbulence of our age yield to the true time of peace, when men and nations shall share a life that honors the dignity of each, the brotherhood of all. I see a world of open borders, open trade, and most importantly, open mind. mind. Hello and welcome to To The Republic, a show dedicated to civics, history, and U.S. institutions. I'm your host, Jake. And I'm Matt. And Matt is back this month. Yay! Yay! And normally when you're on, we talk about something international relations theory. Yeah. This time we're going to be talking about something more domestic and kind of taking the uh, the show in a little bit different direction. I feel like that's kind of when you when it's you and I we 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 do different stuff, which yeah. is fun. Yeah. And uh, so this time we're going to be looking at kind of a, a historical process because normally like we always talk about history on this show and or at least the topic that we're t- we're we're bringing up and we we talk about you bring it from a historical perspective because both of us were history majors. Yeah. I think with this particular topic, um, we'll unveil it in a second, is we're going to look at a snapshot in history to talk about a not-so-fun topic, which is the U.S. Civil War. Yeah. Well, I think it's very applicable to our times to kind of look into our own pasts and see what increasing polarization and active legislative disputes can cause to domestic issues. Because domestic issues, I know we always usually talk about foreign um, <clears throat> foreign policy issues, mm-hmm. but I think United States foreign policy can be affected by internal um, measures. And I know we're not really going to talk about foreign policy today, but Again. yeah, I think it, it's important when we're looking at the U.S. Civil War that we, I know we usually talk about foreign policy, but it's also important to realize that like the U.S. Civil War did have foreign ra- ramifications and, and foreign policy um implications i know that's not really what we're going to focus on today but i still think it's kind of genuinely in the scope of what we talk about yeah i mean i i think so i mean i we won't like you said we won't we won't get into it but yeah there there is a lot there in terms of uh slavery ramifications and exportation of uh of southern end of what little south southern agricultural output in terms of cotton production Mm -hmm. uh had a lot to do with with that so yeah i think you're, you're right to point that out um, before we, we really get rolling on the topic, though, I got to take care of some house, you know, some housekeeping. Mm-hmm. And that's just, um, you know, we we the show hosts on KXRW and X-Ray uh, FM. And uh, there's some great shows else that the, the radio station puts out. KXRW specifically has some great local uh, local local content and local local area specific shows like the Common Good and filibusters with John Oberg. The Common Goods with Joe Clemens. Uh, Voices from our community is is really great. Um, KXRW does a great way, does a great job of getting the voices out and in getting giving this area a voice in politics. And the pre- uh, president Susan Galavis is is amazing. So if you if you like what if you like what um, what the radio station is doing and, and the message and um, just the work that it does in the in the in this local area, please consider donating. You can go to uh, kxrw.fm. There's a donate tab right there. You can listen to the backlog of all of these shows. Um, there's a really ec- eclectic uh, music tastes on there. We're Gordon Green and uh, and Ivan Ivan, who has the show The Mud Club, they bring in uh, music music from all over the world, and they have different themes for each each one of their episodes. So really good stuff to listen to. So yeah, if you like what you're listening to, please uh, yeah please consider uh, going and and um, going and donating or in doing anything you can to to help the uh, 
the radio station continue. So with further ado, I think we'll start on our topic, which is the causes of the U.S. Civil War. We're not going to talk about the Civil War specifically. You're not going to get into any battles, casualty rates, stuff like that, strategy. and, and But we're really going to talk about what were the big pieces of legislation, what were the things that drove this sectionalism um, in our country that basically caused two sides of this country to go to war. And mm-hmm. ultimately, you know, according to some estimates, up to cost the lives of 800,000 Americans. So let's uh, let's just dive into it. Yeah. Um, so I think we should start in the great southern state of Missouri. Um, I think that's probably one of our uh, our biggest talking points for today. Definitely. I think so. The, the Missouri Compromise. Did you want to get into that a bit? Yeah. Um, so as you can guess, the Missouri Compromise happened in Missouri. <laughs> I'm just, I, I feel like I'm presenting back in college rooms like back in the day. <laughs> um, but uh, I think the, the important thing is it was a, uh, around, uh, I believe, 18... 1820? 1820, yeah. And um, the compromise about uh, Missouri wanted to enter the Union as a state, but um, there was a debate of whether it was going to be a free state or a slave state mm-hmm. um, when it entered the Union. And it was really big because of how um, basically the House of Representatives would be um, uh, split mm-hmm. um, between the free and the slave states. Yep. This was kind of probably one of the larger... I guess, embers into a greater conflict that would eventually um, build. But um, I guess for a a, a big summation, the compromise itself was um, that Maine would be added as a free state Mm -hmm. um, while Missouri would be a slave state um, to balance it out. But it had kind of a lot of larger ramifications for the split of the Union um, and, and how um, future states would be Mm -hmm. divided. Yeah. I think that uh, you're, right in pointing out that as much as Missouri entering as a entering the union as a slave state and what that does for representation in the federal government both in the, both with the senate mm-hmm. and with the house of representatives and then counterbalancing that with uh with Maine to make sure that even though the population's differences between Maine and Missouri would affect the house of representatives but it would definitely affect the senate because with equal representation in the senate both states would be putting two senators mm-hmm. into Congress. So um, that that was a big consideration. And I think it's interesting that already in 1820, you start seeing this, uh, you start seeing this, this conversation about what is the future of slavery in the United States. And I think mm-hmm. already early, um, 40 years before the Civil War, you have people pushing for the limitation of slavery mm-hmm. and even starting the rumblings of abolition. Yeah. And we see that um, it's really set of precedents for future states, especially looking towards the um, new states of the Louisiana Purchase mm-hmm. and the ones that are starting yes. to form. And, and then in the territories, um, there was really kind of a toss-up prior to the Missouri Compromise of what's going to happen um, with this new territory. If, you know, not just will they become states, what, mm-hmm. what will happen, but what will their policies be? Yeah. And um, I think this is really kind of that that flashpoint into where do we go from here yeah i mean if you think about all the considerations of the missouri compromise and then you know uh with just a few years prior to that less than a decade Mm -hmm. you have lewis and clark's expedition Mm -hmm. and westward expansion and this idea of manifest Mm -hmm. destiny and what Mm -hmm. was going what what was the the united states going to look like as it expanded and one of the easiest ways to make sure that the new newly acquired territory as the united states 
expanded eventually we expanded this is long-term planning by the by the people in congress and the presidents at during this time was the probably the easiest way to make sure that mm-hmm. those that new territory was ordered was to create states and that whole yeah. process would start with creating provisional governments um and you'll we'll, we'll talk about this as we go forward and mm-hmm. um especially with the the compromise of 1850 which established provisional governments in both utah and in new mexico mm-hmm. um and then eventually those become states so it's it's kind of this this question of of one expansion, but then also what does that expansion, as you pointed out, what mm-hmm. does that expansion look like on with the undercurrent of mm-hmm. what is what is the future of slavery in this country yeah. and how important it was to one section of this country's economy. Yeah. And it's also important to point out how not even just with the 1820 Missouri Compromise, but even prior, America has had um, abolitionist movements and pro-slave movements since its inception. Um, so this wasn't necessarily the first conflict, but this is probably the most significant up to date um, with how America was going to direct itself with uh, future states being admitted to the Union and, and, and how their roles would be played. Definitely. And since the, the since even during this time and definitely beforehand, representation was was white males yeah absolutely, and yeah. so even though there were abolitionist movements in the united states prior mm-hmm. to 1820 you know mostly it was small sectional voices like the quakers in pennsylvania yeah. Yeah. and although the quakers had such a profound effect on british abolition mm-hmm. uh the british ab- in, in the abolitionist movements more generally 1820 i think is really the first time that you see anti-slavery as a voice even though it's a small voice brought up in the in the federal congress yeah which I, th- I think is a which is why i think many people who study the causes and consequences of the civil war really start with this conversation in a lot of ways with the missouri compromise in mm-hmm. 1820 absolutely so um we move forward a little bit mm-hmm. i think in talking about this this question of expansion mm-hmm. and not really a state right away but uh, Texas mm-hmm. has a major role to play in this story, yeah. and you kind of have a bit on that. Did you want to talk, touch on it? Well, yeah, I, I think we all know that the stars are bright um, deep in the heart of Texas. <laughs> well, not just bright, they're big and bright. Yeah. Deep in the heart of Texas. But I think Texas's history is probably actually one of the more interesting um, portions of kind of like that pre-Civil War era because mm-hmm. it wasn't just a, an expansion of again, slave states versus non-slave states, it's also just the expansion of the U.S. westward. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, we know, uh, most probably people recall from their, their U.S. history courses, um, we were in dispute with Mexico, um, who was actually a pretty powerful empire at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there were American um, settlers in um, parts of Texas, um, eventually spilled into conflict, and um, it, 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 they try to proclaim independence as, as the Republic of Texas. Yes. And then eventually um, uh, we went to war with Mexico over Texas um, and um, ended up taking a lot more than just Texas, but um, leading to um, a partition of a significant chunk that would also mm-hmm. be added into the slave state category, yeah. which I think will push us kind of more into our next point, which was another kind of I guess the failed compromise, um, if you wanted to talk oh, about that. Oh, the Wilmot Proviso? Yeah. yeah. First, I want to. I kind of want to stay with Texas just a little bit yeah. because I think that it it um, it really it shows the schism that is starting to grow mm-hmm. in the especially amongst the South. Mm-hmm. And that was when settlers moved into Texas, which, as you pointed out, mm-hmm. was a territory of the Me- Mexico, of Mexico yeah. which Mexico, had just recently yeah. won its freedom from Spain. Yeah. Well, from Spain and then fought France mm-hmm. uh, long in 
interesting history mm. with with uh, Mexico formation and independence. But uh, Mexico did not. Mexico once it won independence because one Mexico had its own issues with colonial uh, rule and slavery. Uh, ended slavery. The slavery mm. was not allowed in the in the, in the now country of Mexico. Yeah. Uh, but that angered a lot of the. Uh, quote, ang- they're not really, I don't know if they were Americans, but, you know, Anglo settlers who mm. moved out of America and settled in Texas owning slaves. And that really, ang- um, when Mexico abolished slavery, that really angered those settlers. And they began um, running raids on mm. uh, Mexican supply lines, um, on ammo on ammo and military depots on, the fr- on Mexico's frontier, because Texas was just a Mexican state that was on its frontier. It really mm-hmm. didn't have a lot of strategic value other than acting as a buffer to the United States and Canada and other colonial powers. So um, Texas was really kind of insequential, but they had to kind of quell this insurrection because there were Mexican citizens living in the territory. So mm-hmm. as these as this tension starts to grow, um, they to try to keep the tensions down, they made an a- agreement with the Texans that they would allow slavery for a period of time if this if the Texans met certain um, certain other points, which was become Mexican citizens, to convert to Catholicism, and um, to stop their basically illegal activity of mm-hmm. raiding Mexico, of uh, basically running raids on Mexico. So yeah. they agreed to that, and over time, the schism just started, and eventually Texas fights its war for independence. Mm-hmm. It kind of wins, um, yeah. you know. It won. It wins one. The Alamo is the famous battle in, in which they lost, mm. uh, and then there was uh, Santa Ana, which is just a general who didn't even have the power to declare Texas uh, free in its own state. And it was just he was just a general who lost a battle, and then they forced him into saying this. Texas then declares independence, even though Mexico hasn't even recognized Texas as an independent nation at this point. Mm. Uh, over time. Texas then begins to petition to the United States for statehood and annexation. And that's when America comes in, fights a war with Mexico, goes all the way to Mexico City, forces Mex- the Mexican government to sign a, uh, a treaty basically ceding Colorado, California, New Mexico, Texas, uh, all of that area to the United States. And now the United States now ha- has all of this as a as land and it's not claimed um, by any particular person. It's not even, they're not even States at this point, but there's all of this free land and that gets us into the Wilmot proviso. Yeah. And I also think the important thing is, can you name that president who got us to go fight the Mexicans down in Mexico? That would be president Polk. Darn Skippy. <laughs> Cause no one, I never remember Polk. Polk. Yeah. He was, he was like the least memorable. Pl- president Polk was also me. the president that uh, negotiated the boundary with great Britain. Uh, in, oh, yeah. Oregon, in the yeah. Oregon Territory. Yeah. yeah. What the was 40, it? 46 and fight, or fight? 46, 40 or fight. fight. Yeah, yeah. 46, 40 mm-hmm. or fight, yeah. Yeah, we were close to yeah. war, another war with Britain over the Oregon Territory. God, yeah. Yeah. God, our, very, our very land would have could have been a battleground. Yeah. I mean, got to have that fur, man. <laughs> uh, um, that's an interesting uh, another topic time, in yeah. its own right. So yeah. we've... We'll, uh, we'll move on a little bit, yeah. but uh, yeah, let's talk about the uh, Wilmot proviso. Wilmot, Wilmot proviso. Yeah. So we can. It's it was a failed. Um, it was a failed attempt at mm-hmm. trying to deal with this newly acquired land from the Mexican American mm-hmm. War. And mm-hmm. how would it? Uh, how would future states from that in that territory be admitted into the Union as either free or slave states? Yeah. Did you want to talk about the yeah, proviso? Because I think it was important. Because if it was successful, it would have essentially 
canceled the 1820 Missouri Compromise. Mm-hmm. Um, since it would have prohibited um, slavery, was it anywhere um, below the Mason-Dixon? Yeah, basically, yeah. W- w- yeah. would have any territory, any basically any future territory, territory would have been would have been yeah. coming as free, free states. states. So yeah, and um, which is a pretty dramatic shift from where we were just in the Compromise of eighteen twenty. Mm-hmm. So uh, a period of you know twenty six years, yeah. we're already seeing a pretty dramatic change um, um, in how we want to split up the territory for an expanding U.S. Definitely. Um, in some of my notes, I, I think. Um, one of the important uh, aspects of this was that the South um, would have had greater representation per se if they hadn't have, I guess, pursued the compromise. Mm-hmm. Um, so what they were trying to do was kind of like reel in southern, southern slave, pro-slave states, mm-hmm. um, especially with Texas being added as a slave state. They were yeah. like, well, how do we buffer this from expanding to basically the entire West? Mm-hmm. And um, unfortunately, it failed. Um, but just seeing that split the ramifications from just the Missouri Compromise to now, mm-hmm. I think we start to see a dramatic shift in the stances of pro-abolitionists and pro-slave, where now pro-abolitionists are even having a stronger voice trying to push for greater um, abolitionist movements or more free states. Sure. Um, yeah. Yeah, I see what you're saying. And um, I, I liked that you pointed out this, this issue of mm-hmm. kind of wrangling in the slave states, because mm-hmm. I think that was a that was one a strategy by mm-hmm. by abolitionist senators and in Congress people mm-hmm. people who wanted to end slavery eventually, but do it mm-hmm. in a peaceful way, which was eventually create so many so many free states that they could then mm-hmm. legislate out slavery because of just having overwhelming numbers with new senators coming in and changing the house representatives to the mm-hmm. point where they could then legislate out slavery over yeah. a long period of time and just kicking this kind of con- continuing to kick this can down the road. Yeah. Right. To try to find a peaceful solution to slavery. Yeah. Whereas the South knew what was going on and saw the Wilmot proviso mm-hmm. as an extension of this. I think one, mm-hmm. the one thing that I read about the Wilmot proviso that I think is really important is that, the Republican Party wasn't a thing. Senator Wilmot was, a, was a Whig, Whig. Yeah. and kind of having this really kind of, and I think you mentioned this too. How it's almost was ra- Wilmot proviso in a way was almost was radical, yeah. uh, in its thinking. And what it did is it eventually it, it set the stage for the radical Republican Party to become mm-hmm. prominent. And I think if if anything, I think you 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 were you were spot on by saying it, it's a it was a it exposed the sectional the growing sectionalism between mm-hmm. free and slave states, mm-hmm. uh, north and south, and, but then also it, it established the Republican Party, mm-hmm. um, at least the Republican Party of the eighteen hundreds. So anyway, uh, I think with that, I think it, we're gonna we're gonna take a break and hear from our sponsors. Uh, so when we come back, we will continue uh, talking about the the history of of this era prior to the Civil War and the the key things that led to the Civil War happening. So mm-hmm. uh, when we come back, that's what we'll talk about. You've been listening to To the Republic. I'm Jake. And I'm Matt. We'll be right back. Many thanks to our sponsor and friends at Say Chow Columbia River Tap Room and Eatery. Chef Peter has been cooking for over 27 years in the Vancouver area. Say Chow Greater Vancouver's premier catering company. Conveniently located at 2501 Southeast Columbia Way in Vancouver. Dine in or take out for lunch Monday through Friday, 11 to 2 p.m. Hours will change and live local music will return once again as COVID phases allow. 
More information available at say-chow.com. That's S-A-Y-C-I-A-O.com or directly at 360-210-5522. KXRW would like to thank New Vansterdam for their ongoing support of community radio. New Vansterdam is Vancouver's premier cannabis market. Visit newvansterdam.com to view and order from their full online menu. And they offer in-store, curbside, and touchless pickup to better serve you. New Vansterdam is located in the Height Shopping Center on the corner of Mill Plain and Andreessen Road. Open 8 a.m. to 11 p.m., 365 days a year. More information at newvansterdam.com. Welcome back to To the Republic. I'm Jake. And I'm Matt. In our last segment, we talked primarily about uh, what were the causes of the Civil War. And we discussed uh, the early pieces of legislation, such as the Missouri Compromise in 1820, and then talked uh, about how Texas Revolution and then the Mexican-American War really kind of was part of this whole push and really started driving further wedges into the sectionalism sectionalism that was developing uh, between the North and South on the issue of slavery. Uh, we talked a bit about the Wilmot Proviso and how that, uh, even though it was failed legislation, how that was a symptom of this growing factionalism in the United States. And I think now in this, oh, we're going to continue this this topic, kind of hitting the big highlights leading up to the the war starting in 1860. So I think mm-hmm. with uh, with that, we'll talk about, the, about a bit about the eight, the Compromise of 1850. Did you want yeah. to take that one? Yeah. Um, so when we look at the Compromise of 1850, I think it's also good to um, kind of tie in also the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, oh, good point. which was good which point. was the treaty uh, that basically ceded most of the Mexican territory in North America to the U.S., other than obviously it was in Central mm-hmm. America. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think... It was still up for grabs at this point what was going to happen with the what happened after the Treaty of Guadalupe Hildago. So uh, the Compromise of um, 1850 uh, was kind of just further carrying on this idea of what's going to happen with slaves versus um, free states. Mm-hmm. Um, I think um, it was introduced by, was it Clay or Taylor? Senator Clay. Clay. Yeah. Clay. Essentially, what the goal was was for popular sovereignty mm-hmm. and for the new territories and um, eventual states to essentially decide whether they would be pro slave or um, uh, free states. Yeah, it, um, that that starts in eight, in that kind of popular sovereignty issue starts mm-hmm. in 1850, but it was really codified in the Kansas Nebraska Act, yeah. which we'll yeah. talk about in a little bit. Yeah. But what were your other, some of your big takeaways from 1850? Well, I think it was just more for um, the appropriation of federal funds for, because again, it was kind of building off of the Wilmot Proviso. Mm-hmm. And I think it was just this dances on the new territories mm-hmm. and what, what their future would, would be. Um, there was a lot of pushback, especially by um, Zach Taylor, um, Zachary Taylor, for the, um, who was very um, uh, pro-slavery, um, to say the least. I think this was also kind of showing that the divide between the Republicans and the Southern Democrats were probably becoming its most heated um, towards this period of time. Definitely. I just, I just think this was kind of the, the almost a flashpoint for the Kansas-Nebraska. I would say, so. yeah, I would I would definitely say so because you start with with the, the, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo mm-hmm. giving the United States all this new land, and we were talking about how mm-hmm. that land the best way to organize that land was to create states. So you have all this land and new states starting to yeah. form. 
Uh, and the, the Compromise of 1850, what it did is it, it admitted Texas formally mm. into the oh, Union yeah, course, as yeah. a slave state. Yeah. And then California yeah. uh, became, a, became a state, state. But, as, but it was a free, free state. state yeah. um, it could, did not allow slavery. Yeah. Uh, it also set up territorial governments in Utah, kind of basically mm. these are proto-states. They, this is this is beginning the process of becoming state. Yeah. So as you can see, this there's always this like rat race amongst the t- two different sections in Congress. Like, mm-hmm. how do you like a- about trying to form these different governments that are going to once if one's going to come in and mess up the balance, we got to hurry up and get another one that's mm-hmm. going to be a free state or vice versa to make sure like we keep this. Mm-hmm. Um, either side doesn't allow the other the other to get advantage in mm-hmm. terms of representation and how and then passing legislation that would mm-hmm. either limit or restrict slavery mm-hmm. um, re- or expand slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think they this. These acts, I think, are seen by Southerners especially as mm-hmm. uh, not necessarily is kind of antagonistic, or at least mm-hmm. they they see the North as trying to dictate to them how they can run their economies, how they can mm-hmm. run uh, their governments, mm-hmm. and they see it as in the Northerners and these these radical Republicans at this point in 1850 as being antagonistic, mm-hmm. and you start to see even that schism start to grow. And even though 1850 didn't really have the weight of the Kansas-Nebraska Act that would follow it or the Missouri yeah. Compromise that would uh, that preceded it, uh, I think you, you see the 1850 um, really continued this. Um, this movement of, of sectionalism. And I, that's just some one thing I, w- I want to hammer home is that mm-hmm. through this and these heated debates in Congress, you start seeing both sides viewing the other more as enemies than as co-equal governors yeah. of the United States. And I think those psychological mechanisms and the wording starting to change amongst yeah. how opponent political opponents viewed each other, not as opponents anymore, but as enemies. And I think that is something that we start to see today. And I think in our ne- and I think in our third segment, talking about the breaking down of those democratic norms mm-hmm. today, in a lot of ways, I think eerily parallels this particular time in American history, Absolutely. more so than I think anything else. Maybe that's biased because we're we're we've only lived in this time. We're mm-hmm. both fairly young, so maybe we're just maybe we're we're making more out of this than it is, but we're both students of history and I think we both are well read and especially in American history in this time. And there's a lot of parallels and that's kind of scary. Uh, so the, the Kansas Nebraska act. Yeah. I think I, I maybe jumped the gun with the 1850, uh, the Commonwealth of 1850 because you're right. Kansas Nebraska act was more of the popular sovereignty mm-hmm. um, being pushed. And um, I think um, this is when we see the most, this was probably the biggest spark Mm-hmm. Um, leading to the Civil War. Um, again, we've been seeing a slow buildup, but this was really the tipping point. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I, I think um, it, it was kind of the flash pan, I guess, okay. for lack of better words. Sure. Um, um, Why do you think that? I think it's because it was, again, trying to wrest this power of who will determine what is governed and what, section of America is it the federal government do the states have the right to choose what their des- you know what their fate is mm-hmm. what, what their laws will be um, uh, I think it, it was just it was trying to find a compromise again this kind of that really wasn't a compromise mm-hmm. um, this was more of just trying to be like hey you pick and choose and try to avoid kind of the factionalism but it if anything heated it up mm-hmm. um, but uh, I mean 
this is where you see honestly the the biggest sparks of violence. Um, Definitely. Um, I mean, yeah, yeah, Kansas was was nicknamed Bleeding yeah. Kansas yeah. during the late 1850s, a um, mm. lot of ways because of this this uh, this popular this issue of mm. popular sovereignty, letting states pick yeah. their fate. Which is interesting because it basically what it does is it abolishes the the Missouri Compromise of 1820 yeah. mm-hmm. because the 1820 the Missouri Compromise of 1820 as we talked about in the first segment didn't allow slavery above the Mason Dixon line or the 36 mm-hmm. 30 parallel mm-hmm. now because both Kansas and the Nebraska territories mm-hmm. which for context Nebraska territory includes the Dakotas at this point yeah so it'd be the Kansas and then Nebraska which it was a lot more land than it is now. We're going to be admitted as states, but would they be admitted as free states mm-hmm. or as slave states? It's going to be left up to the yeah. to the people in those territories. There was a heated debate there between mm-hmm. allowing it f- between free and and slave. There was people who wanted it both ways. And it should be noted that it wasn't that the people in Kansas who were anti-slavery were mainly because they. Uh, they had some altruistic calling for the rights of African Americans for right. blacks. It was because they were worried about what how slavery how slavery would undercut um, the economy for poor white yeah. uh, laborers because yeah. slaves are cheaper than wage workers, yeah. and wage workers were worried about how allowing slavery yeah. in the territory would undercut their, their yeah. ability to to survive in, in, in an economic system. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that was more the debate around allowing Kansas, Nebraska to be free or, 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 uh, or not. So as Bleeding Kansas um, kind of gets its nickname, when the the elect when the uh, the votes were happening at polling places, you see violence spark up all over the place. People mm-hmm. from you had fraudulent elections throughout the territory where uh, pro slave um, pro slave voters were coming over from Missouri, free state voters pouring in from other areas to to vote fraudulently in elections to try to 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 try to sway the election. You even have this like crazy race. Be, um, between people who were claiming that Kansas was a had won the election as a slave state and Kansas had won the election as a free state, and both parties were racing each other to Washington D.C. to deliver to President James Buchanan, mm-hmm. uh, who would about uh, about who actually won the election. Mm-hmm. James Buchanan sided with the with the pro-slavery movement allowing Kansas to be entered in. So that even, so Kansas, even when it became a state, it was contested about whether it was free or should it, would, should it be free or should it be a slave state? Mm-hmm. But did hammer home this issue, like 200 and some Kansans were killed in the, in the violence around this election. And that a lot of historians point to this as really kind of the first part of the civil war. Yeah. When you have people killing each other over politics Yeah, and, you have one f- very famous person named John Brown, who was a staunch abolitionist, was drawing his arguments from religion. He was a very crazy guy, murdered an entire family of uh, slave owners in Kansas. He got away with it, but eventually he eventually he uh, he barked up the wrong tree in in, in Virginia he raided the the state armory in mm-hmm. Richmond and he wasn't a particularly good military commander and it failed spectacularly but the arguments around him really became a lot bigger than what it should have been but because of the politics at play at time and then we talk about antagonism and sectionalism and both sides latched on to both John Brown and the response of the Virginia government to mm-hmm. John Brown as points of contention. And mm-hmm. I think 
we'll talk about that because I think it does tie in quite a bit to to the kind of the getting into this topic of today. So mm-hmm. when we get back from break, I want to talk about I want to try to answer two questions if you're if you're done with it mm-hmm. about when was the Civil War likely and when was the Civil War inevitable? Mm-hmm. And so we'll we'll start by talking about the 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 case of John Brown and then we'll um then we'll wrap up with that conversation. Sound mm-hmm. good? Yeah, sounds good. All right. So we'll take a break and hear from our sponsors. I'm Jake. And I'm Matt. We'll be right back. KXRW would like to thank New Amsterdam for their ongoing support of our radio community. New Amsterdam is Vancouver's premier cannabis market for those 21 years of age and over. Visit NewVanstradam.com to view an order from the full online menu, and they now offer in-store, curbside, and touchless pickup to better serve you. New Amsterdam is located in the Heights Shopping Center on the corner of Mill Plain and Andreessen Road. Open 8 a.m. to 11 p.m., 365 days a year. More information available at newvanstradam.com. Community radio like this is brought to you by the generous support by our founding sponsors at ADCO Commercial Printing and Graphics. Clark County's local print shop since 1993, ADCO features stationery, posters, flyers, tickets, business cards, stickers, catalogs, and much more. Print on anything and mail anywhere. Learn more at adco1.com. That's A-D-C-O, the number one, dot com. Welcome back to To the Republic. I'm Jake. I'm Matt. In our last segment, we talked about the Kansas-Nebraska Act and how the the Texas uh, annexation and the uh, war for Texas independence and the Mexican-American War all created more sectionalism in the United States around this issue of slavery, which I want to hammer home. This is all the issue of slavery. And those who say that the Civil War wasn't about slavery don't know the history of the, <laughs> of the Civil War. Of the Civil war. Yeah. This was about slavery. Yeah. So that's one thing I wanted to really hammer home. And we hadn't mentioned yet. I just felt like I wanted to start the segment yeah. uh, about that because that seems to be a Something you hear today it's, is that this about, was about states' rights. Well, it was the state right to own slaves. Exactly. So, yeah. anyway, uh, a little off topic, but I wanted to just throw that out yeah. there. Um, anyway, so to finish up, uh, I w- finish up a conversation we we're having on the other side of the break, which was about John Brown, and he was a fierce abolitionist, um, kind of all around crazy guy. Uh, he was fighting for the right thing, but kind of doing the wrong things, yeah. and he. After murdering a, a family of slave owners in Kansas, he then him and his sons and some followers raided a raided the the state armory of Virginia in an attempt to get a bunch of arms to then give to slaves to then overthrow their masters. It failed spectacularly. the the Virginia the Virginia uh, militia led by Robert E. Lee. Quickly retook back uh, the the armor the armory and John John Brown was tried and hung. Yeah. Well, because it was the state armory of Virginia, the federal government claimed that they actually had they should have been the federal government claimed that they should have been ones to try John Brown, but Virginia tried John Brown, and you have all of these debates about the state of Virginia ends up saying that no, we have jurisdiction. So now there's you have this 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 battle over. Just over jurisdictions, states versus the federal government, what are states' rights? And so that's just, and you already have this, now it's it's, it's cloaked in this issue of slavery, of this abolitionist, and in the, in the southern states use this as a poster child to see, hey, see, this is what abolitionists want. They want mm-hmm. to arm your slaves, and they want to they want to arm the slaves, and they mm-hmm. want to overthrow mm-hmm. the entire economic system. They want to kill you guys, and 
there's all this propaganda surrounding John Brown's yeah. actions and the, the, the North are, are trying to exert their sovereignty over the States. And it's just, it boils over in basically tensions are at a tipping point. Mm-hmm. And John Brown was just the match that set off this keg of, yeah. you know, this powder keg that ultimately uh, exploded with the election of 1860 when Abraham yeah, Lincoln, Lincoln won election and didn't receive a single vote in nine States. Yeah. But because he won the electoral college, Mm-hmm. He ended up being president, mm-hmm. which then you history, you know, it is pretty everybody knows the history at this point. The southern states begin starting with South Carolina, secede mm-hmm. from the Union, and the Civil War starts. Yeah. So in a rage for five years and approximately about eight hundred thousand Americans die. Yeah. That's kind of the this the the short story of how the Civil War started. And now I kind of want to have this kind of open ended discussion about how we see a lot of these parallels of factionalism, sectionalism, Mm -hmm. issues of state rights versus federal authority. Um, And how do you see some of those parallels today? That's a great question. I think where I see the parallels, I think we mentioned it, um, maybe it was with, um, where we started to see this turning the other into the enemy and Mm -hmm. turning it, you know, the sphere of politics becoming more than, agreements and disagreements but saying the people you disagree with aren't just wrong they're your enemy and you have to fight them mm-hmm. tooth and nail um i see that a lot in how we engage in in just basic conversations with people yeah we're not willing to just talk um and and try to you know learn something from each other rekindle a sense of community with each other mm-hmm but to move forward in a positive direction that from history, what we saw with the events leading up to the civil war didn't happen. Um, no, it, wasn't it, remediation. it definitely did. It definitely didn't. Um, the hope of a peaceful reconciliation with the South died with John Wilkes Booth mm-hmm. assassinating president Lincoln, yeah. because the difference in terms of how reconstruction was viewed between Lincoln and his vice president, uh, Andrew Johnson, uh, was was drastically different. Mm-hmm. Johnson wanted um, to punish the South and was also, but did not believe in. Uh, he was also, but he was a racist and he mm-hmm. d- didn't really care about Reconstruction setting up um, equality for the freed slaves. Mm-hmm. It was more about punishing the South and the so- Southern elite mm-hmm. than it, um, which ultimately it de- it destined Reconstruction and the Freedmen's Bureau for for failure mm-hmm. and. Eventually, the, the, the radical Republicans be, lost their taste for this revolutionary idea of, mm-hmm. of the, that, that pushed the 14th, 15th, uh, 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments through. Mm-hmm. To kind of build back on your, your point of what, what kind of parallels do we see today? And I'm seeing it a lot, unfortunately, with, um, with the Kansas-Nebraska Act, at least the bleeding Kansas part of this. Mm-hmm. And that is you have because Kansas was such a, f- like you've used the word flashpoint. And I think mm-hmm. that's a really good word to use for a lot of these things with, within the, with, within this process that led to the civil war in the 1800s. And now I think that you see some of these areas uh, of political strife as becoming, I don't know, ground zero for different parties to air out their grievances with each mm-hmm. other. Because as you saw with the, as we talked about the Kansas Nebraska act, people from Missouri were flooding into Kansas mm-hmm. to, to fight 
for their cause when yeah. their cause was pro-slavery and you see uh abolitionists or you see pro or um anti-slavery people coming into nebraska and kansas to fight for their cause mm-hmm. and you've and then it boils over to people shooting each other yeah. and unfortunately with the incident in kenosha in wisconsin over the last weekend where you had a um someone who was ag- against the uh, the protest, the Black Lives Matter protesters, bringing coming from 30 minutes away in Illinois, coming mm-hmm. into Wisconsin, uh, and then sh- ultimately shoots protesters, innocent protesters. And, and even though there's not tight geographic lines, like a 36 parallel the Mason Dixon line, there definitely is a cultural schism being drawn in this country. And mm-hmm. I, I think that empirically, you start to see that, especially with these pro- with um, the counter protests mm-hmm. to a social push amongst the BLM with with the BLM movement, and you see the counter protests as a as I think growing sectionalism within this country. Yeah, I was interested to see is there anything there spark uh, spark an avenue you want to go down. I mean, I I, I definitely agree with a lot of, of what you said, but I think one thing to also point out is the identity issues of today compared to the identity issues of the civil war the the prelude to the civil war okay sure and this identitarian kind of thing where obviously you can say like there's identitarian politics there's you know southern democrats and republicans or today democrats and republicans Mm -hmm. but i think it's something even more than that now where democrat and republicans aren't just a political group it's an identity group now um like if you say you're a democrat i know what you for the most part view if Mm -hmm. if you see a republican i know for the most part we view Uh, i'm not saying everyone is one giant um, amalgamation i know there's differing views within those um specific political views but it seems that we've attached it to our identity of self okay and so when i see you know i see in facebook is i think and and social media in general sparks conflict it kind of thrives off of conflict and it directs you towards it. Um, and I think when I see, like for you and me, for example, just comparing our, our relationship and friendship, we are not universal in our ideas. Like there are things you agree with that I disagree with, things that you disagree with that I agree with, you know, with each other's positions. Sure. Um, but I don't associate, for example, your view on universal healthcare with you being either a good or bad person. <laughs> but I, I, yeah. I know we laugh at that, but I think it's something that is genuinely perplexing to me because I don't think people separate it anymore as oh, much as they def- used to. Definitely not. No. I think they're like, Oh, you're a liberal or you're a conservative. Therefore you are my enemy and therefore you are evil, mm-hmm. which I am not convinced is accurate. I think boiling people down to such basic identities Mm -hmm. is a massive disservice to building a community well but it's an easy way to create in groups and out groups absolutely and and it's not unique to us no it's definitely not unique to us civil wars happen all over the world and have happened all the world and will continue to happen all over the world um but we just i think we've grown accustomed to not thinking that it's going to happen here yeah. or it can't happen here yeah, again yeah, yeah um and just the asymmetry in arms between um 
the government and any sort of uprising group mm -hmm. is so vast that I don't really see a civil war the way ever potentially even being a, a thing the way we saw it in the 1860s where you have two uniform sides meeting on a battlefield. I don't see that as a possible, I don't really see that as a possibility. I do, however, can see happening just drawing these parallels that you start seeing different warring factions, not really tied to the government or state governments versus state governments, but you see different warring factions mm -hmm. um, clashing it out in, in cities or around the country in different capacities. But I, I, I fear that we we're going to begin seeing more of what happened in Kenosha and then also in um, Portland as a, as counter protesters met each other. Yeah. I also think that we as a society are not living up to our potential. And by that, I don't mean in some grandiose, you know, sun in the sky kind of potential, but just as who we can be as people. I, 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 I know people say from the onset, you know, America was a country of great ideals and values. I actually don't agree with that wholeheartedly. I think there were some definitely great values, you know, in our, you know, you know, freedom of speech, you know, all that. That's not what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. But objectively, from the beginning, we had rocky moral character um, as a society. Mm -hmm. We, you know, slavery was, you know, a key institution. Um, women didn't have the right to vote. Again, it's a different time. I'm not, I'm not trying to say we should apply necessarily our ethics of today on the people of the past, but there's always been kind of this idea that we're moving towards something better, mm -hmm. um, better for minorities, better for women, better for economic groups, you know, people who growing in the, the economic strata. I, 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 I see the, the potential and when we work together mm -hmm. and when we strive to see each other succeed, um, I know obviously not everyone can succeed all the time. And when you have a speci specifically political views, oftentimes you'll run into walls where you do disagree and someone's going to win or someone's going to lose. But if we always boil down things to win or lose, you know, uh, winner takes all outcomes, no one really wins. Mm -hmm. There always has to be some level of compromise and, and making it so that the game is at least fair for everyone, making it so that at the end of the day, we walk away not thinking that my neighbor is plotting to ruin my life mm -hmm. and make this world terrible because yeah. I don't think anyone wants the world to be terrible. I think we all want the world to be better. We just disagree on how we get there. True. And I think that that is the, that should be the starting point of every conversation in government between elected officials is that we're both elected officials. I acknowledge that you have the right to power. You acknowledge that I have the right to power and we, we start with that we are both better off compromising. Mm. We're both better. We're everybody's better off when we work together. Mm -hmm. And that is the start of any conversation. Yeah. We've lost, we've obviously lost that way yeah. in the, this is not the first time our country has lost Correct. their way. And, and it seems, it seems like that is so far apart, but it's really not. No. We can, we can choose to reject that. Yeah. This is a lot of this is social constructions that, we can just we can change if we choose to change, yeah. and I, I, you and I read both read a book how democracies die, mm -hmm. and I think one of the the things that they point to is these democratic norms acting as guardrails, and when you see the breakdown of a particular norm, which is 
something that you and I have both touched on, both as, as a historical example about the sectionalism and the political game is that when somebody loses, they don't just quit, yeah. right? There's they at least are they're at least benefiting from still being a part of that system, mm-hmm. and that they may they there's this knowledge of if I lose this time, I still I might win in the future, yeah. And it cre- it keeps this game going mm-hmm. because this isn't a this isn't at the end of the day we we use the word game, but it's not like a structured game where there's an end and there's a score mm-hmm. that's being kept. America being stable is the goal here, and we want to make sure that all sides have uh, have a voice in this. And then when you have that breakdown of norms where I don't see you as legitimate. I don't see you. I see your victory as a direct loss to me. He starts mm-hmm. viewing things in a zero sum mindset. Yeah. yeah. You, you start to see this othering of people. You start mm-hmm. drawing boundaries and you start creating in groups versus out groups. And I think you're, you're absolutely right in, in saying that there is a lot of parallels between how opposing sides in, in the um, in the lead up to the Civil War, viewed each other to how you see rhetoric, especially from one side, one political party talking about the other in really just dramatic terms. Yeah, yeah and I think you really see it with. I mean, if you watch both the DNC and the RNC, for example, you'll find similar rhetoric where they're they're really painting each other as the enemy. Um, I mean, I, I I just worry that we will genuinely start to believe it and that can cascade into a whole new bag of cats um, that I'd hopefully not find ourselves in. But yeah, I, it's, it's definitely a time of, of change. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the problem is people, th- I think people want to find some sense of stability and that like things will be the same forever but it never really is things are always changing mm-hmm. um sure yeah history and I, I know we always hear this story about history doesn't repeat itself it rhymes and yeah we'll go through these periods where we'll see a lot of similarities but we're we're moving in a direction that's different than it was yesterday mm-hmm. we have to be willing to accept that the world we live in today is not the same world we, that we found in 1850 mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean we don't have issues that are similar yeah Definitely. And to add to that complexity, I do want to try to really quickly um, answer those questions we posed at the end of last segment, Mm -hmm. uh, which was when was the Civil War likely and when was it inevitable? So after kind of researching these different uh, highlights Mm -hmm. slash lowlights of the era leading up to the Civil War, what is your opinion on those questions or how would you answer those questions? I think... Because I, I think our listeners are going to be thinking for dates. I don't actually think it's the dates that are important, per se. Mm-hmm. I think it's the mindset. Okay. Um, I think when it was likely was when... I mean, you could say 1820 when we started, you know, choosing what states do what um, when it comes to pro-slavery and, and free states. I think it's when we started to realize the other side was the enemy. I think that's when it was, I think it was likely when we started having increased polarization and it became inevitable when we saw the other side as an enemy. Um, I, I think if you want to correlate that with the time periods, 1820, you know, we started seeing increased polarization. With the Kansas-Nebraska Act, we literally saw people as enemies. I think it definitely became inevitable, I think. Um, I think I would echo um, your answer on inevitability when did it become inevitable and i think it became inevitable when 
this issue of slavery, which how can you be a country that writes that all men are created equal and you use words like we the people, but then deny Mm -hmm. a massive part of your population all of those basic rights, mm-hmm. women and, Af- and, and minorities, blacks who were enslaved. I don't know. You can't, you can't be a country who built itself up on this moral high ground and then continues to, but then continue to have slavery as an Absolutely. institution for as long as it did. Absolutely. And the fact that even though there was debates going on and you had this issue of sectionalism, the, the inability of the country to figure that situation out and kept continuing to kick the can down the road with all these different um, compromises, mm-hmm. I think made it likely. Yeah. But really I would say that if I had to put a date on it, I would say that the civil war became likely in the year 16, 1619 when the first African slaves reached the shores of what would eventually become the United States. Mm-hmm. When slavery was brought to this land, whatever form, whatever government ended up being erected there there was going this issue of equal rights, the abolition of slavery was going to come to a head one way or the other. Yeah. And it became inevitable when those two, when the two sides started killing each other over that very question. Yeah. So when you look at today, to parallel, to kind of wrap it up with today, I would say that this our inability to really listen and really take seriously as a country as a country as a whole because i know there's a lot of people who are listening to black lives matter who are listening who really are for the first time paying attention to this the rampant social inequality and racial inequality in this country but there's still a lot of people who are it's falling on deaf ears or trying to change and in co-opt or just put their put their boot on this movement and crush it once again, our inability, our inability as a country to have that conversation and to deal, actually really deal with this issue of inequality in a country that holds itself up as a equal society is going to continue to further drive wedges into this country. And I think that is the most important parallel to point out is that we didn't learn. We're not learning from, our past that we didn't deal with this situation and we just kicked the can down the road and we're doing it again. We're, we're just basically saying, let somebody else deal with this issue of inequality. Let future Americans deal with it right now is the time to deal with it. Yeah. In my opinion, like it's past due. It's time to listen and it's time to do, it's time that we actually did something about it because we see where this ends up. Yeah. We see how we, you can look at, 1820 to 1860 and you can say all these different moments when things could have gone differently why why are we going to continue to postpone dealing with this issue because it's going to result in more death and more loss of in in more destruction than we can imagine and it's time to deal with it so that's how that's kind of my uh, my way to wrap up and answer that question. Absolutely. Did you have anything else you wanted to add? No, I, I think that was a great point, and I I I, I think you said it perfectly. I, I think you know we can't be eighteen twenty kicking the can to eighteen forty six to eighteen fifty to you know eventually chaos. Mm-hmm. No, I yeah I uh, I agree. So 
I want to thank you guys all for listening. And Matt, thank you for for uh, yeah, for coming course, back on. Really appreciate it. So, I think next month we'll uh, we'll be back. And uh, once again, appreciate you guys all for listening. Thank yeah. you very much. You've been listening to the Republic. I'm Jake, and I'm Matt. Have a good rest of your month. Big thank you to our friends at Boomerang Therapy Works and home of the KXRW Studios. Boomerang is open and ready to provide physical therapy from head to toe while incorporating CDC standard COVID precautions. Boomerang provides premier PT treatment and is the West Coast home of Reaxing, the neurological training revolution. If listeners have a neurological disorder, stroke, or traumatic brain injury, Boomerang clinicians are specially trained for patients with these conditions as well. More information at boomerangtherapyworks.com or 360-258-1637. That's 360-258-1637. Big shout out to our friends at Vancouver Pizza Company for supporting KXRW Vancouver. This family-owned pizza restaurant offers 25 specialty pizzas, along with fresh salads, hot sandwiches, wings, and their famous breadsticks. Can't come in to dine? Vancouver Pizza Company offers delivery or pickup as well. Their delivery area also includes our friends in North Portland. More information available at VancouverPizza.net. That's VancouverPizza.net. Many thanks to our sponsor and friends at Say Chow Columbia River Tap Room and Eatery. Chef Peter has been cooking for over 27 years in the Vancouver area. Say Chow Greater Vancouver's premier catering company. Conveniently located at 2501 Southeast Columbia Way in Vancouver. Dine in or take out for lunch Monday through Friday, 11 to 2 p.m. Hours will change and live local music will return once again as COVID phases allow. More information available at say-chow.com, that's S-A-Y-C-I-A-O.com, or directly at 360-210-5522.